Welcome to the National Library. If you're a local, I hope you've had your democracy sausage already. Mine, um, mine's, I hope, will still be waiting for me after today's event. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Catherine Favell, and I have the very great pleasure of looking after the library's community programs. Days like today, um, and we have a big week, actually, of programs coming up, so hopefully you'll come back after, after today and, and join us for some more wonderful events. As we begin today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the, this land that we're on, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and thank them and their elders, past and present, for looking after this land that we now have the privilege to live on and call home. I've had a little sneak preview of today's conversation. Um, we're going to think about and talk about how we can save the world one bee at a time through our backyards and our gardens. Joining us is our self-professed bee evangelist, Doug Purdy. Doug is the co-founder of the Urban Beehive, which manages over 100 beehives on city rooftops, balconies, backyards and in community gardens around Sydney. He teaches beginner beekeeping courses, so if you're inspired today, you can join him in Sydney to learn more. He's the president of the Sydney branch of the Amateur Beekeepers Association, and he's the author of two books, Backyard Bees, and his latest, The Bee-Friendly Garden, which I think probably wins the prize for the most beautiful cover published this year. Today, Doug's going to ask you to think like a bee, and he's going to inspire us to transform our backyards and balconies into bug nirvanas to help save our bees one plant at a time. Please join me in welcoming Doug Purdy. Thank you. I'm just going to get myself a glass of water because I'll um... I should have done that earlier. I think I can put it there. Great. Thank you. Um, thanks for coming. Um, are there any beekeepers in the room? Great, a couple. So I can get away with a, get away with a few lies before, um, before I get lynched. Look, so is your husband's a beekeeper? Excellent. We want more bees in the garden. That's what it should be all about. Um, look, it's, it's, I, I mean, I never set out to become a beekeeper. Um, my background's not in beekeeping. Um, about 2005, I was selling honey. Uh, for my local community association, and um, and the honey had been given to me by a local beekeeper. And you know, as happens at these sort of market stalls, people were asking questions about the honey. And for me, um, I put honey on my toast, and that was about it. I had no other interest apart from that. And uh, anyway, I did the research to try and answer these people's questions, and I was horrified to discover that bees are in trouble all around the world, and um, basically made it my mission to try and do something about that. And so that led me to become a beekeeper. And, um, and my first sort of experiences were um, going to my local beekeeping association, which was about a 45-minute drive from my house, so it wasn't really local, and, um, and going to this meeting, which was filled with mainly quite elderly men. Uh, and the guy running the meeting was deaf and had a gavel. And that was how the meetings ran. And, you know, that was not so long ago. That was only a short time ago. It was about 2005 when I started doing that. And, you know, in, in about 10 years, it's amazing how beekeeping has changed. And now lots of younger people are interested in being beekeepers and, um, and lots of women are interested in being beekeepers. My business partner's a woman. Um, so, you know, it's all changed, which is a wonderful thing because people are now thinking about bees. 
maybe starting to take those steps that I was I took when I um when I went from uh, being a consumer of honey on my crumpets to actually making it in my own backyard. And the wonderful thing about bees is that you know they don't need a lot, but um, but somehow we've changed our environment to actually remove what they need. So, you know, bees have been around an awfully long time. They evolved um, pre-dinosaurs. So they evolved with the first flowers that needed um, pollination. And, um, and, you know, about the last 100 years or so, we've actually worked out how to kill them properly. And we're doing a marvellous job at the moment, you know. Um, it, it's amazing. Overseas, bees are in a lot more trouble than they are in Australia. You know, in Australia, um, bees are relatively OK as far as the introduced bee, the European honeybee. Um, and, you know, the things that are killing the European honeybee all around the world is a thing called varroa mite. I don't know how many of you know of varroa, but it's, um, it's quite a big problem. And up until about two months ago, Australia didn't have varroa. And we were the only continent on Earth that didn't have varroa. And then um, on an introduced bee that we've got up in Queensland um, that came in a boat mast, um, they discovered varroa in Townsville. And it's a different varroa to the one that's doing all of the damage around the world, but it has the ability to jump species and can jump from this Asian honeybee across to our European honeybee, as it did in, in New Guinea. And um, if that happens, uh, it'll be absolutely devastating for our European honeybee populations. So overseas where that's happened, about 90% of the managed beehives have died um, within that first sort of 12-month period. So it's absolutely devastating. And it puts Australia in a bad place because um, Australia hasn't relied on migratory beekeepers. So migratory beekeepers are those beekeepers that throw a whole lot of beehives on the backs of trucks and drive them around to do pollination services for agriculture. Um, when bees were brought to Australia, so they were brought to New South Wales in 1822 and the rest of Australia around the same time, um, bees just took off and they populated... Um, you know, all the bushland, because Australia is a very nectar-rich country. And so there's lo- these bees are still around. There's lots of feral beehives in Australian bush. And for the most part, those feral beehives are the ones that do the pollination of all the commercial crops that are grown, with the exception of a couple of crops like almonds. So uh, farmers don't need to employ beekeepers to bring in beehives to do pollination. If Varroa, or if that varroa jumps species, or we, worse still, we get varroa destructor, the really bad one, into Australia, and we lose a lot of those, um, those managed beehives. We'll also lose all the unmanaged beehives, which means that our, our, our farmers won't have beekeepers to, or won't have bees to, to do any of the pollination. And that puts Australia in a pretty bad spot. And, and pollination's important. So um, I often get people, when I, I do lots of these sorts of talks, you know, and I often get people say to me that, you know, I don't eat flowers and I don't really need this pollination stuff. And it's really interesting because people are quite disconnected from what pollination actually is. Um, I, I saw a marvellous um, thing on TV with Jamie Oliver in the US and he was talking to kids, 16-year-olds, about where honey comes from. And he had, like, this big poster and the poster had... Um, it had a honeydew melon, it had a honey bear and it had a honey bee. And almost none of the kids picked the honeybee. Most of them picked the melon and the bear as being where honey came from, which is astounding. Hopefully, I haven't tried that in Australia, but hopefully that doesn't happen here. But, you know, people are disconnected from it. And I say to people, you know, um, pollination is really important for our food chain. I think Greenpeace estimates about 90% of the nutritious food that we eat 
uh, is pollinated, um, you know, and, and it's very, very important. And that's just the things people, when you think of pollination, people think of things like apples, you know, and they need pollinating, sure, and they think of citrus. But it's all sorts of bizarre things like lettuce needs pollinating. And it's not because we eat the lettuce fruit, because there isn't one, but to grow lettuces, you need lettuce seed. And without pollination, you don't get lettuce seeds, so you can't grow more lettuces. Um, things like lucerne, you know, hay needs pollinating. Um, hemp needs pollinating. Cotton needs pollinating. It just goes on. And so I, I like to say, uh, rightly or wrongly, if we don't have bees and we don't have pollination, that we're going to be naked and hungry. Um, because we won't have a lot of the food that we want to eat. And what's left is mainly wind-pollinated things, which tend to be grains. And our stock will want to eat those grains, so we'll be competing with our stock to eat that stuff. So we probably won't have as much stock, which means we won't have leather and we won't have wool and we won't have a lot of those things that we're used to having. And it will just basically plunge us back into um, probably pre-dinosaur times again. So hopefully that doesn't happen. And, um, and the idea behind writing this sort of book is to help people make little changes that will make a big difference. So all around the world, people are looking at, at pollinators and how we can help them, in particular native pollinators. And, you know, here in Australia, we have about, let's say, 2,000 species of native bee. And many of those have specific jobs. So they've evolved with flowers and they have, you know, a long tongue or a short tongue or a particular weight or a particular feature that makes them uh, quite specific about the flowers that they pollinate. And so these flowers and the bees have grown to have a, a symbiotic relationship. And if you lose that particular native bee, then you will lose the flower that it's designed to pollinate and vice versa. So we want to really try and help our native bee populations. And, um, and the way that we can do that is by planting things. So if you, if you go and walk outside here... Um, actually, I was really impressed on the way from the airport to see a lot of flowering weeds in the grass. And flowering weeds are great. Weeds are fantastic for nectar production and pollen. And it was really encouraging to see those still there because often they get mowed. Um, as soon as they pop their heads up, they get mowed or herbicide comes out and they get rid of them. So they were really good to see. And, um, you know, apart from those, you'll see a lot of grass and there's not much else. And it's become a bit of a trend, you know, architects... Um, I was doing a bit of architect bashing before, um, before you guys came. You know, architects are really into having these very, very stark gardens at the moment. And they'll have a bit of grass and maybe some spiky plants, architectural plants, they call them. A few yuccas, maybe, you know. Yuccas are amazing because a yucca flowers once and then dies. That's it, never flowers again. And so um, we have these sort of architectural gardens that are low maintenance, but they're effectively deserts for any of our pollinators. So I, I came up with the bee goggles. And the idea was that if you went out into your backyard or any space and put your bee goggles on and had a look at the space from the perspective of a bee and see what food there is available. And if you do that, I think you'd be surprised because a lot of gardens don't have very much flowering at all um, or many parts of the year they're completely barren and there's no food there. And so a bee is looking for pollen and nectar. Those are the two things. And so if you don't provide those, there's no food for bees. And it's not just bees. It's a whole lot of beneficial insects. And, you know, the beneficial insects also bring, bring birds in. And so, you know, all of our sort of ecosystem requires the basics of nectar and pollen. 
Um, and when I talk about people bringing bees into gardens, people get a bit panicky because they think the bees are going to get out there and sting them. And it's perfectly natural to have bees in the environment. The bees aren't out there to get you, um, you know, and they're doing their own thing. Because they, they came from a long time ago and um, as wonderful as you might think you look today, uh, you don't look like a flower and the bees are going to avoid you. They're going to go to the flowers unless you're threatening towards them. So, it, it, I mean, that's a real thing, you know. In the US where they have, um, in the, the White House, they have a, um, uh, they call it a butterfly garden. And they've put this butterfly garden in for all of the pollinators. And really it's there for bees. But they call it a butterfly garden so that people aren't scared of the fact that it's attracting bees. Which is, yeah, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? So, um, what you need to do is put your bee goggles on and then go out and have a look in the garden and see what you've got flowering. And you, your aim should be to always have two things flowering all year round. I don't mean like two individual plants. I mean two types of plant. And to try and have groups of those plants so that you've got sort of uneven areas of different plants flowering all year round. And that's your ultimate aim. And if you achieve that, then you're achieving a garden that's great for pollinators. And it's not that hard. You know, the other thing that's good is disorder. So for all of you that keep being told to go out there and clean up the backyard, um, don't clean up the backyard. What you want is disorder. You don't, don't want to mow the weeds. You, know. you don't want to um, take away all of the dead wood. You don't want to mulch um, the earth banks and so forth. You want to try and leave all of that sort of stuff because all of that is habitat. You know, and that's where bees and other insects live. Um, the other thing you need to think about, too, is your use of things like insecticide. So um, lots of people... Well, you think about it, you can go to the, your local supermarket and you can buy a thing you stick on the back of the wall that sprays that insecticide every 15 minutes to kill any insects that are coming in to your barbecue or whatever. And it's remarkable, they sell quite a lot of those things. Whereas it used to be only, I don't know, when I was a kid, which was like yesterday, um, you used to actually put on, you know, have a good weekend... You'd put on an insect repellent rather than something that kills the insects. You know, and you've just got to go to your local hardware store and have a look at the amazing aisle of every insecticide you can imagine on the earth that's available in these aisles to kill everything. And it's a problem, you know. We don't need to kill everything. Um, there are times when you have to use these things. But for the most part, the ecosystem takes care of itself. The problem with using an insecticide is that it kills everything. So the predators are killed as well. So if you've got, I don't know, an aphid problem and you go in there and spray them with insecticide, you're killing off the lacewings and all the other um, insects that actually grow to predate on the aphids. And so the system will always be out of whack. Whereas if you hold back, it will eventually catch up, as it's meant to. As there's more food available, the predators that rely on that food will increase in volume and take care of the problem and then die off as the food disappears, you know, and that's the way the cycle's supposed to work. You come in there with your insecticide and you make a big mess. And so you need to think about that and reel back the use of that stuff. Um, herbicides is the other one. Herbicides are terrible things. Um, there's lots of research being done that's pointing the finger at herbicides being the cause for a whole lot of problems. But basically, if it's killing things, it can't be good. And so anything with the word side at the end of it, you need to worry about. Um, fungicides, another one, really bad. People tested fungicides with bees, as they have with herbicides. And, um, and they'll go, oh, look, the herbicide's fine. We've tested the active ingredient in the herbicide. It doesn't kill bees. 
And they're right. But what happens is they make a concoction of these things, so they stick stuff in the solution to make it work better. And one of the things they stick in the solutions are surfactants. And the surfactants make the herbicide spread better over the leaves of the plant that you're trying to deal with. And um, unfortunately, the surfactants are poisonous and kill the insect. But they don't test that because they're only testing the active ingredient. And the same goes on for a whole lot of chemicals that are available for use in the average garden from your local hardware store. So you need to reel back on those as well and maybe let nature take its course a little bit. Um, fungicides are a great one because they actually thought the fungicides are really um, fine with, for use with bees. And then, um, then they discovered that bees store pollen. So when you, you see a bee on a flower, it's collecting nectar and pollen. They also collect water, but that's another story. So when it's, this plant has been sprayed with a fungicide, usually it's in the pollen. And they take that fungicide back to the, the beehive. And what we didn't realise is that when they store pollen, they're storing a whole lot of yeasts with that pollen. And the fungicide kills off the funguses, so it kills off the yeast. And the beehives become much, much weaker than they would have otherwise. So the, um, the, the fungicide isn't actually killing the bees, but it's having this long-term effect on the health of the beehive. So what I say to people is, OK, rethink what you're doing there and maybe... Don't use a fungicide, don't use a herbicide. Go back to the old way, pull the weeds out by hand or you know, use mulch or other covers to kill the weeds. Um, don't spray insecticides unless you absolutely have to. And it's very rare that you have to, but you do have to sometimes. Um, you know, and go back to other ways of doing it. There's a, there's a photo in my book of me out in my backyard with the vacuum cleaner sucking up stink bugs. <laughs> don't use a good vacuum cleaner because you'll get in trouble. So I use the one out of my garage, which I won't get in trouble for using. But, you know, it's incredibly effective. And it's those sort of things that you can do rather than spraying them. Whereas I could have gone to the hardware store and got a spray that would kill the, kill the stink bugs. You know, because they're horrible things. They squirt out a very, very caustic solution. They can blind you. And they can burn your fingers if you go and grab them all. Um, whereas they can't burn the vacuum cleaner. So it's the ultimate tool. It's very satisfying too because they rattle as, they, as you catch them. Um, so I might digress away from plants a little bit and talk a little bit about what's going on inside the beehive, seeing as there's not so many beekeepers in here, and people usually find what's going on in a beehive fairly interesting. Um, I, I deal with bees every day, so for me I know what's going on in there and, and I, quite, I be, find bees quite cute, um, which might be surprising to those of you who aren't beekeepers. But bees are very cute, um, and there's nothing better than sitting by the beehive and watching the bees come and go and looking at the coloured pollen on their legs and wondering where on earth that came from, because there's amazing the array of pollens that are out there. So now, inside the beehive, you've got three basic sorts of bee. You have the queen bee, um, who isn't in charge, although it's amazing how much the society is built around the queen bee in being in charge, or sayings and so forth, but it's not true. It's actually a democracy. Um, and then you have the worker bees, who are all female. So if you see a bee out there doing work... It's a female bee. It's a worker bee. And by work, I mean anything. So if you see a bee doing anything, it's a worker bee, and it's female. And then the third sort of bee that you have is the drone, which are the boy bees. And a few interesting facts. So the, so the worker bee and the queen bee both come from fertilised eggs. And the only thing that makes a queen bee is that the egg gets fed a huge amount of royal jelly. 
And it's a thing called epigenetics, which is a fascinating topic, which I won't talk about today because that's not what you're here for. But Google it because epigenetics is fascinating and it applies to humans as well. And anyway, lots of raw jelly causes certain genes to be switched on and other genes to be turned off, and it creates a quite a different insect. Um, then you have the drones, the boys, and the drones come from unfertilised eggs. So they don't have fathers, they only have grandfathers, which all seems a bit weird to us being humans, but in the insect world, that's quite normal. Um, and genetically, it has its own interesting features. Um, so anyway, so... The worker bees do all the work. There's about 80,000 of those in a beehive. There's one queen bee whose job is just to lay eggs and she lays 2,000 eggs a day. And about 2,000 bees die a day and are replaced by the ones that have been, been laid. And then you have the drones. It's about 2% of the beehive is drones. And um, drones between about 10am and 3pm, they hang out in drone congregation areas which a lot of us beekeepers refer to as the pub. Because <laughs> the drones aren't doing any work and they, just ha they can't even feed themselves, right? They actually have to be fed. And they hang out in the drone congregation areas and they're looking for virgin queens. And so drones, if you look at a drone, a drone's quite a big bee. Um, no stinger, massive eyes, like really, really big eyes. And that's so that he can see the virgin queens. So all the boys hang out together in the pub, the drone congregation area, and they wait till a virgin queen flies past. And then as soon as one flies past, all the drones take off and the first one to get there wins the prize. Now, unfortunately for him, um, his genitals get ripped off in the, in the process of doing this and he falls to the ground dead. Um, and you assume that he's happy about this and probably has a bee smile on his face or something. <laughs> for, the, for the boys that don't succeed in doing that during their lives, come autumn, there's no more virgin queens left. So they really only raise queens during sort of spring and, and summer. And um, that means that those boys are a drain on the, on the hive. So what the queens do, so what the bees do rather, is pick up those drones and physically haul them out of the beehive and dump them outside. And they die of exposure. Sometimes they chew their wings off so they can't get back in. And so it's pretty sad to see all these boys being carted out ready to die of exposure. And so what happens, when I talk to groups like this, all the boys that were in the room that were going, hey, that's pretty good, don't have to do much, get fed, don't do any work, you know, hang out in the pub, um, it's got a bad bit to the story, which is if you hang around for a whole season, you're dead, you die of exposure. And that's sort of the way it works. Um, the other thing about the Queen is she mates with a whole lot of drones. So um, she mates with about 30, they reckon, and, and she has to fill up... Um, an organ's called a spermatheca with, with semen. And so she mates with all these drones and, and um, eventually fills up that, that organ and away she goes. She's got her life's semen. And so she never mates again after that short period of the beginning of her life. And she uses up the semen until it runs out. And if it runs out early or um, if the bees don't notice that she's running out because she starts to lay more drones, you can tell in a beehive if the queen's getting old... Um, if the bees don't notice, the beehive will die because they need worker bees. They need, they need um, a worker bee egg or just a fertilised egg to raise another queen, uh, which sometimes happens, um, or the beekeeper will come in and, and um, do something about it. So people often ask, how long does a queen live? And she lives as long as her semen lasts, basically. Um, and, yeah, then the beekeeper will usually do something about it if the bees haven't noticed and done something about it themselves. 
Um, there's also people will often say you only ever find one queen in a beehive, which is not true. Um, sometimes you find two, uh, which is fairly weird when you do that. And it's part of supersedure when the bees realise the queen's wearing out. Um, they raise another one, and sometimes the two coexist inside the beehive for a while um, before the one that's wearing out is disposed of. Um, the, bees don't, the bees are not very emotional. It's funny how a lot of people put um, human emotions on the beehive. And I was requeening re a lot of hives yesterday, which involves basically finding the queen and squatching her. Um, and the bees almost immediately pick them up and chuck her out the front. Like, it's, there's, no, there's no funeral. <laughs> you know, the hot, Thailand's mourning for a year. None of that in the bee world. They just chuck them out the front and get ready for the new one to come along. You know, it's amazing. Um, I was talking a bit before about how the democracy works inside a beehive, and that's a fascinating thing. Um, this guy made a, sort of his life's work to study bee democracy, and he wrote a book about it, which is about, I don't know, it's thicker than mine. It's quite impressive. Um, I've only read about half of it. I got a bit bogged down before I finished it. And um, what he did was he took bees to part of um, America that has no bees. And he took bees there every year. And then he had a lot of PhD students to work with, which sound like very useful things. I wish I had a few spare for when we're busy in spring. And what the PhD students did was they went and colour-coded all the bees in all the beehives by putting little dots of paint on their backs. And then they all then ran around following the bees all around the island, recording where all the coloured, what coloured bee had gone where. And what they worked out is that bees go and measure um, potential sites, so where they think they're going to swarm to. And they go and step out the inside of these sites to measure the volume. And they're looking for about 30 litres volume, we've since worked out. And they go back to the beehive and they do this thing called the waggle dance to tell the other bees what they've found. And the waggle dance is really cool. I'll just digress for a moment into the waggle dance. Waggle dance is really cool. So if you imagine this, if we turned the lights off and had no light in here at all, and I said to you, tell me how to get back to the airport, and you can only do it by dancing, <laughs> that's the waggle dance. So the bees use this dance to tell other bees how to find a flower or a water source or a pollen source up to eight kilometres from their beehive, purely by dancing. And so the dance has a few elements that... A guy called Carl von Frisch decoded the dance, so we know how it works. But basically, um, the dance indicates distance and how far... Um, like dis distance and how far, yeah, good one. It <laughs> indicates distance and, and it's basically using the sun and the angle of the sun, sort of the, the, like, the general direction they need to go in. And the bees can actually quite accurately find these sites again based on that piece of information just from a dance which is remarkable. Um, and in the UK, someone using a whole lot of other, UK, other um, PhD students spent a whole year recording the waggle dances of all the bees that came back to this beehive. And what they worked out was that in summer, because they, they spent a whole year recording them, like videoing them, and then they spent a lot of other time decoding those waggle dances, like with a screen and a protractor and working it out. And they did a thematic map around the beehive showing where the bees were foraging for a whole year. And what they discovered was that in summer, when there should be a lot more food around, the bees had to go much, much further to get their food. And it was based on farming practices. So if you go and look at farming, most farming these days is fairly intensive. And what they're trying to do is squeeze out the most they can out of that small piece of land they've got to work with, or in some cases, very large piece of land they've got to work with.
by removing as much competitive plants as they can and only planting what the crop that they want to harvest. And so what that means is there's less food around for bees because there's a lot of dirt and not a lot of wildflowers or weeds or anything else because you've removed them all. And it was a bit of a shock to discover that the bees had to go much, much further to get food when they should have been much closer to the beehive. And so lots of research has been done on that um, and done on planting wildflowers around crops and what a difference it makes. So in, um, in the US they did a study with, um, with um, blueberries and blueberries are part of the nightshade family. They're, they need buzz pollination. Buzz pollination? Am I talking... Cool. So, buzz pollination is amazing stuff. So, the nightshade family is things like um, potatoes, tomatoes, capsicums, eggplants, um, blueberries, those sort of things. There's a whole range of stuff. And what happens is the pollen is locked up inside a tube. And it doesn't come out um, unless the plant is vibrated at a certain frequency. And so nature has designed bees, certain bees, that can sonicate. And what the bees do is they go and grab hold of the plant or the parts of the flower and vibrate their wing muscles without vibrating their wings. And it shakes the plant at just the right frequency to shake the pollen loose. And it's called sonication. When they grow, it's quite interesting that when they grow tomatoes in polytunnels, they don't have bees. And so they have to run around with sonicators which makes them sound like they're from Doctor Who with a sonic screwdriver, um, and it's like an electric toothbrush, and go and sonicate the flowers to rattle the pollen loose so that you can actually have tomatoes. Anyway, with blueberries, they need sonication. So they took this blueberry farm, and let's say it was 20 hectares of blueberries. I don't know the actual numbers. And they took it and divided it up into fields. And half the fields they left planted with blueberries... And the other half of the fields, they planted with wildflowers. Then after a year, they noticed that they had recovered the cost of the wildflowers that they'd planted by increased yield in the blueberries that had now only covered half the field. And it worked out they could make more blueberries than they could in planting the whole lot with blueberries. So half the, half the actual land planted with blueberries but they're actually making more blueberries than they were when they had the whole lot planted with blueberries because of all the native pollinators that were coming in and surviving because they had this, um, this wildflowers to live on. And the wildflowers became perpetual because they were being pollinated, so they just kept you know, reseeding themselves and regrowing and regrowing. And that's led to um, a few big programs happening in the US where they're making these pollinator highways that some of you might have heard of, where they... Um, they go and plant things like the rough in a golf course. In fact, a big chemical company, Syngenta, is funding some of these things, where they go and plant the rough in, um, in golf courses with wildflowers. Because, I mean, it's the rough, it doesn't really matter. And wildflowers are providing forage for pollinators. And they're planting the verges of highways where they used to be mowed all the time by the farmers. They've gone, oh, hang on a minute, if we plant it with wildflowers, we'll just let the wildflowers develop. We don't have to mow it all the time. So all this energy they were spending mowing the verges, um, they can stop spending if they let it go back to the way it was. Yeah, surprise, surprise. And it's bringing in more pollinators, which is actually increasing the yields of the farms. It's really interesting stuff. But it's not rocket science. And so these, um, these sort of pollinator highways are the sort of things that we need to be doing in urban areas as well. Because the bees get cut off. You know, if you think about... a, a uh, any sort of development that happens, 
before the development happens, there's you know, usually lots of things growing wild. Even, even commercial land is like that. It's got wildflowers and weeds and things growing on it, which are all habitat. Then they come in and put a, um, a development there and replace all of that. And they reforest it, if you like, with a bit of grass and leave a few gum trees in place. But often there's areas of concrete between one set of plantings and the next. And what happens is the native pollinators aren't great flyers. They usually only go maybe up to 800 metres and they can't get from one area to the next because they're stuck. There's no way of getting there. There's no food on the way. Um, so by coming in and planting some things that actually flower, you can facilitate the bees moving from one area to the next. And that's what they're talking about when they talk about pollinator highways. Uh, and it's astounding in Europe. Um, they actually have a website where you can log on and see where you need to have more things growing. Everybody logs their gardens and you can see where you need to plant more things that flower to fill in the gaps in the pollinator highway. And so there's these huge programs where everybody's getting involved and growing a few flowering plants in their balconies to fill up those gaps in the highway, which is the sort of thing I'd like to see happening in Australia. It'd be awesome if we get to that point. Um, you know, and people are getting the, me the, the message, but wouldn't it be awesome if suddenly people thought, gee, I'll put something that flowers in? And people say to me, oh, but your bees, you know, you've got your bees in the city, they're making honey. I go, yeah, they make heaps of honey. Well, we don't need to plant anything. Well, my European honeybees are fine. They fly a long way. It's all our native pollinators that we need to cater for. And having, you know, native pollinators and other insects there bring in all the bird life and everything else. So, so my little postage stamp in Darlinghurst in, in, in inner Sydney, right near the Coke sign, in the middle of the thick of everything, um, I get a whole lot of native birds come in, I get dragonflies, I get all this stuff coming in that you wouldn't expect to be there and a whole lot of native bees as well because there's habitat there. My garden's a mess, I get in trouble for it, but there's always something flowering. Apart from the cockatoos, I wish I could make the cockatoos go away <laughs> because they, I was sitting in the backyard enjoying the serenity and um, there was, I was laughing because the cockatoos were eating my neighbour's house and I, was out, I took a few photos because I thought that was quite funny. And they came over and stole my lemons. And they grabbed the lemon and flew off. Like, not just one, but a whole lot of them grabbed the lemon and flew off. I couldn't believe it. It's like they were poking fun at me. They've been back since, and I go out and yell at them. Um, but, you know, so it, that, it's not hard to plant a few things that makes a big difference, and that's what I want people to do is think about that and think about what's growing and plant a bit of stuff, which will help a lot. You know, and, um, and if we get to the point where we've got pollinator highways everywhere then we're going to do amazing things for our, our local bees. You know, bees have just been on the endangered species for the first time. Some of you might have seen that. A couple of... I think they're... Um, I can't remember where they're from in America, a particular area. I need two bees. But, you know, it's scary to think that those native bees are possibly going to be lost. And in Australia, we have lots of native bees that we don't even know about yet because it's such a big country that could be lost as well because we have not providing habitat for them. You know, or our farming practices aren't providing habitat for them. We're lucky in some ways. We run behind the rest of the world. But, um, but you know, one of the most intensive farming that exists is um, almond farming. So there's probably people in the room that like almond milk because it's better for the environment than drinking cow's milk. A few people were a bit scared and put their hand up a little bit. Um, so each almond kernel uses about six gallons of water to grow which is an astounding amount of, water, amount of water. And if you Google it, you'll see what I mean. 
And the reason that's the case is they're always almost always grown in, in arid environments and they're grown as, um, as very, very intensive farming where everything is killed off apart from the almond trees. So if you were to go to California and have a look, you'd be astounded at the acre upon acre upon acre upon acre of, of almond plantings that exist. And because nothing else is growing there, the only way they can actually pollinate them is to bring bees in. So um, they bring in very, very large numbers of beehives every year into the almonds um, in America, which is how varroa got spread around the whole of the US. And those, because there's been a drought um, in California for the last few years, the almond production's been dropping off. And so the people that are growing the almonds are now growing them in Australia, down near the border of New South Wales and, and, and um, South Australia. And um, they're growing them with exactly the same methodology. And the almond pollination event has just happened in Australia where a lot of beekeepers take all their bees down there. And it's known to be a possible vector for disease. And uh, unsurprisingly, um, a whole lot of disease was discovered down there this year. They did, ran a big operation testing all the beehives and found a whole lot of disease in the hives that were going in there, which is really disappointing that there's beekeepers that were doing that. But it's quite scary for Australian agriculture because um, those sorts of things are now starting to happen where companies are looking at Australia and going, well, let's do what we do overseas and do it here. And if they continue to do that, then um, they're going to break a few things that perhaps don't need breaking. I always feel like I talk about bad news the whole time. <laughs> What's some good news? Um, I'll tell you more about bees because I love bees. Um, so bees go about eight kilometres. So they fly a long way. About a 50 square kilometre radius one beehive pollinates, which is pretty amazing. So my bees right in the middle of Sydney are going quite a long way. Um, a single beehive make about 100 kilos of honey. Or mine do anyway, it depends where you are. Uh, the most I've got is 170 kilos out of one beehive. Just standing in one place, it's not moving around because I don't move my hives around. Um, yeah, there's an interesting thing. So bees are designed to have this thing called constancy. And so what, what nature did was they went, OK, we've got to have our flowers pollinated. So um, it works if the same pollen gets put onto the same plant. You can't... You know, you can't pollinate an avocado with lemon pollen. Maybe you can, lemonado or something, I don't know, but you can't, right? So you need to have the same plant. And so nature designed bees to have this thing called constancy. So bees will go back to the same source of nectar or pollen until it's exhausted. It's the way they work. And that means that you get maximum pollination of whatever it is that they're visiting. And it's had some interesting um, side effects. So there's a few cases... Um, in New York, a place called Red Hook, which is in Brooklyn, um, they had a problem with red honey. So all these beekeepers were getting red, red honey. And it didn't taste like honey, it tasted like... Um, I was worried mine was going to do that, and I put it on mute. Um, they were worried about, um, worried about this you know, red honey that tasted metallic, and they couldn't work it out. Um, until the Maraschino Cherry Factory rang up the Beekeepers Association and said, we've got this problem with bees coming in and stealing the Maraschino Cherry Syrup. And so they thought the bees had found the maraschino cherry factory and it was like a, it was a source of nectar that never ran out. <laughs> so they kept going to the maraschino cherry factory and stealing the syrup and making honey out of it, you know, and eventually they had to bee-proof the factory to prevent the problem from happening. And um, there's been another case in France 
where the bees were making this amazing multicoloured honey. And it was like green and blue and brown and all these amazing yellow, amazing colours. And it was M&M waste. <laughs> and the bees had found where they were throwing away the M&M waste and going and stealing it and making honey out of it, which is pretty amazing. And we see the same things happening to us um, in, in urban Sydney because you know, any, any urban area where you grow bees, you have pockets of things flowering. And so when I'll put a frame out of the beehive... Sometimes you have amazing rainbows of colours because there's as many honeys as there are flowering plants. So you can get, you know, if you've got short flowering seasons on some of the plants, you get very, very short bands and you get amazing, amazing bands of colour. There's a few photos of that, of that stuff in that book. You'll see these amazing bands of colour, you know, and they all taste a little bit different, which is what makes beekeeping interesting. And when I sell my honey like I do, people say to me, oh, well, I really like, you know, the spring honey from the CBD, and the spring honey from the CBD will be completely different this year to what it was last year because different things are flowering. Um, and we also get a honey that no-one likes, um, that we can't work out where that comes from, which is a bit of a problem because we're getting more of it at the moment. Um, and it tastes... I reckon it tastes like almonds. I hate marzipan. It tastes a bit like marzipan to me. Um, Vicky reckons it just tastes horrible. And if you get a room of people and give them a taste... About a third of the room likes it and the rest of the room doesn't like it at all. And we don't know what it is because we haven't got a big enough pollen database to work it out. But it's just another feature of urban beekeeping where things are a little bit different all year round. I'm not sure how much longer I've got to yak on about bees. Would you like to have, go to some questions? I can, well, I can do that or I can just keep talking. It's easy. We'll go to questions. I like the sound of my own voice. So it's, yeah. Gosh, okay. Well, I'll counter it with a slightly different answer, okay. which is interesting.